Amen, church. Join me as we recite the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen, church. Why don't you say hi to the person across from you? Morning. How are y'all doing? Morning. Yeah? Chilling? Hanging out? My name is uh, Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, joining us in worship. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, whether it's a hard copy or an app, uh, go ahead and open or load it to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to kick off our time in verse 12. Now, as you do that, as usual, I'll ramble a little bit as we get ready for our time in the Word. Uh, If you are new, once again, thanks so much for being here with us. In the chairs before you, there should be these Connect cards. And on those Connect cards, you can fill one out with questions, comments, and prayer requests. Uh, And you could drop them in the offering basket that I'll go, uh, it'll get passed around later on. Or you could drop it in the back Connect area, uh, and uh, because we'd love to hang out with you. Um, In addition to that... Uh, if you are new and you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the seats that are before you and take that with you. That is our gift to you. Uh, what else do I got? So we're going to be wrapping up the Apostles' Creed uh, this morning. I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But uh, let me tell you where we're headed next week because I'm kind of stoked about it. Uh, next week, we're going to jump back into a book of the Bible. We're going to be walking through the Song of Solomon. Uh, I'm really, really excited about this because, uh, man, I just love making things awkward and uncomfortable. And the Song of Solomon really does that for you uh, because I will tell you, I'm going to give you this little glimpse. It gives you, um, better yet, let me say it this way. As we walk into the Song of Solomon, what we need to do first, and we'll talk about this more next, next week, what we first need to do is develop a theology, a biblical understanding of, uh, of sex and marriage and romance. And then as we walk into Song of Solomon, we're going to see that theology or that understanding unfold before us, right? And so I think it'll be fun. Uh, In addition to that, we're calling it asking for a friend uh, because it's certainly going to raise a couple of questions that you may or may not submit and you may or may not say, oh, my friend wants to know. Um, So that's next week. Uh, Really excited about that. We'll be in the Song of Solomon for about eight weeks uh, during that time. Man, a bit of a praise. I just kind of want to share this with you. I don't know. My mind is like really, uh, it's going right now. It's not just the coffee, though that is part of it. Uh, uh, My mind is just racing. One, maybe it's because we're wrapping up the Apostles' Creed, and uh, and that's cool. Uh, It could be because, uh, man, God has just been so good uh, to us over the past couple of weeks. We've seen a lot of really cool things happen. Uh, But in addition to that, yesterday afternoon, my uh, my grandson was born. Uh, His name is Ezra. Yeah. Uh, so that's very awesome. Uh, mom is doing really well. They should be released this afternoon. Uh, my wife, Rebecca, is already up there in San Antonio with our stepdaughter and, and other granddaughter hanging out with them. That's a story. But nevertheless, 
Uh, man, really excited to meet him later today. Uh, what am I getting? Okay, we're, gonna, we're, we're here to listen to the word. Um, so you should be in 1 Corinthians. So my, my brain's a little scattered. I'm sorry. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I think I've already told you that. Uh, man, I'm just going to jump in and then I'll pray because I don't know, man. Whatever. You know what? Let me pray right now. I'm going to pray for our time. I'm going to pray for you. Why don't you pray for me? Because obviously uh, I'm, I'm just so scattered. God, we thank you for this time where we come to, uh, where we get to come and worship you. Uh, we get to sing songs and hymns, uh, man, from, from the bottom of our soul and with the fullness of our heart. God, as we dive into your word this morning, Lord, number one, I ask that you would set me aside in Holy Spirit, that it would clearly be you working through me. God, I pray that those who know you would come to know you better this morning. I pray that those who don't know you would come to know you this morning. God, I pray that uh, the things that we have to do afterward, maybe we've even calendared it on our phone, that those things, those appointments, those perhaps even distractions would be set aside so that, would be, so that we would fully be devoted to this time of of worship, not just service, but worship. God, we thank you for the opportunity. Uh, and we thank you for the opportunity to be receptive to you. So I pray for renewed minds. I pray for transformed hearts. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would guide our time. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. So this morning, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be wrapping up uh, the Apostles' Creed. It's been a great study. I have loved this series in the Apostles' Creed. I hope you have too. Uh, it's certainly provided really good conversation and discussion, particularly in our missional community, but also among friends throughout the week. So I hope you have enjoyed it. For the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at uh, the back end of the Apostles' Creed. And I've said it this way before, uh, and I'll say it briefly. The Apostles' Creed could really be broken up into these two sections, with about 75% of the Creed telling us everything about the character of God and who He is and what He has done for us in Christ. We have looked at uh, what it means to say, I believe, and the implication of that. We have looked at uh, the character of God the Father, God the Son. Son. Uh, we've looked at his work specifically, not just in his ministry on earth, but on the cross and through his resurrection. We have looked at the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And for the past couple of weeks, the creed has led us to this place where as we dive back into scripture, it points out things that the church ought to be or points out things that the church ought to do, namely our role with one another and our character as the church as we aim to reflect the person and work of Jesus in the ordinary. And so this morning, as we close up, we're going to be looking at the last section that reads uh, that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Now, some of you may get a little nervous. Some of you may get a little bit excited because you're thinking, oh man, there's some eschatological talk here of the end times, probably, but we're not necessarily going to dive into it just yet because I got more than that just to say. I got more to say than just that. 
So what we're going to do as we walk into 1 Corinthians, we're going to look at this 50,000 foot view of what Paul is saying and some of the implications of what he is saying. And then we're going to dive into some practical application regarding what it means to be content. And we'll talk about that later. I don't want to give it away too bad, though you could look at the notes. Before we look at this passage, however, I want us to briefly consider two things. I want us to briefly consider death. I just went real morbid. I want us to really consider death, and I want us to consider heaven. Part of the reason I want us to consider these two things is because I don't think we have a good, or oftentimes we don't have a good understanding of death and heaven. And oftentimes, we're unfortunately wrong. You see, when it comes to death, we don't often talk about it because it's not necessarily good conversation at the dinner table. Death is something that we might be afraid of. Maybe that is something that you think of when it comes to death. Man, I don't want to talk about that because that's kind of scary. In his book, Remember Death, Matthew McCullough goes on to say that back in the 19th century, the topic of death was kind of normal at the dinner table while the topic of sex was more taboo. Well, we fast forward to the 21st century and uh, the topic of sex tends to be a little bit more uh, something that we talk about at the dinner table, kind of, maybe. You never know. I don't know what kind of family you are. And so uh, you talk about it at the dinner table or it's in regular conversation, particularly amidst the culture. But when it comes to death, that's something you don't really talk about. That's kind of taboo. We don't talk about that jazz, right? Like, yeah, I get it. It's imminent, but uh, I kind of don't want to talk about it. And so there's the, mm, there's the idea or the thought that it is scary, or there's certainly that belief. But in addition to that, when it comes to the topic of death, sometimes we don't want to talk about it because we often treat death like an inconvenience to life. Maybe you got a really good season going on. And when it comes to death, you're like, man, I don't want to talk about that. That's like bad juju. And so when it comes into my life, I really don't want to talk about that. Like I got some good things going on. That would be the last thing I want to talk about. In this passage, however, Paul forces us to look at death. But he also forces us to look at what happens after. Well, we'll talk about that later. The next thing is I mentioned I want you to consider heaven. You see, oftentimes when we think about heaven, just like when we think about death, we tend to have an immature understanding, an immature biblical understanding of what death is and what death means. And then when we look at heaven, we tend to just hop on that like kind of bandwagon and say, well, it's better than this life. Uh, and it's better than hell, so that's kind of cool. Uh, but every time we've talked about heaven or every time I've, I've uh, had or have been in discussion when it's come to heaven, uh, frankly, it's kind of boring. Like we're going to be wearing white, white robes and we might be floating and we might be singing and that's kind of cool. I mean, it certainly is better than hell. And uh, so, yeah, I guess I'm in, right? We, we tend to have these immature thoughts and understandings of of death and heaven. And so if you have found yourself in those previously, or if you find yourself there now, then here's what I would submit to you. It's not necessarily something new, but here's what I would submit to you, that it is 
an immature understanding of two things, of sanctification, that is the work of God in us, an immature understanding of sanctification and glorification, what it means to be in the presence of God in his glory. If you don't hear anything this morning, hopefully you'll hear this. The resurrection of Christ ought to produce yearning for the return of Christ. Say it one more time. The resurrection of Christ ought to produce yearning for the return of Christ. And that yearning, we're going to dive into that in just a moment, and that yearning starts today. You know what is meant by yearning, right? This longing for, you cannot wait for X, Y, and Z to happen. Your hope is found in the foundation of what you yearn for. And so with that being said, let's dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. This is what Paul says for us. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 12. Excuse me, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come, or has also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. As I mentioned, we're going to take this 50,000 foot view of what Paul is saying. And so here's what Paul is saying. He is saying that the resurrection of Christ has implication. The resurrection of Christ has implication. And he paints this implication in two manners. He paints it in a negative sense. That is, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, here are some implications. But then he comes back with a positive sense and says, but because Christ has been raised, here are the implications upon which we stand. So beginning with the first, if Christ has not been raised, here is Paul's argument. If Christ has not been raised, then believers are still in their sin. That is the first thing or one of the first things that Paul says. Believers are still in their sin. 
And it's kind of a domino effect. There's some uh, systematic things that happen. And so believers are still found in their sin. And in addition to that, God's judgment is still upon us. That's what Paul is saying. That if Christ has not been raised, then we still find ourselves in our sin and God's judgment, God's wrath is still upon our head. As a result, our faith or our hope found in Christ is meaningless. And that's how he paints it. If Christ has not been raised, then we are still in our sin. God's wrath is still upon us. And our hope, our faith is meaningless. In fact, we're liars and we ought to be pitied. Then Paul goes on to say, however, Christ has been raised. And so there is a direct contrast. So because Christ has been raised, believers are actually forgiven. We talked about this, I think, when we looked at the character of the church, the Holy Catholic Church part, where we love to preach half of the gospel, right? Half of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for sinners on the cross. He died, was buried, and on the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and then he sends his Holy Spirit to dwell in the bodies, in the life of believers. So there is transformation that comes with us being forgiven. You can't be a stagnant Christian, And so Paul is saying, because he has been raised from the dead, believers are forgiven. Jesus has fully satisfied the wrath of God on the cross. And ultimately, Jesus is the hope that Adam could never be. Through Jesus, we have the promise of our resurrection and the life everlasting. And Paul summarizes this by essentially asking or answering the question, well, why does this matter? Well, it matters because since Jesus has done all of the work, that is, that Jesus has reconciled man to God, he has restored relationship back to God, then it gives us meaning. It gives meaning to the Christian life how we ought to reflect the person and work of Jesus. It gives meaning to our faith. It matters what we believe because it shapes how we live. And it matters in the context of hope because what we do now is in direct, not opposition, but it's in direct correlation to what is to come. Meaning provides hope for the future. And because Jesus is alive, we have a future hope in our present time. Because Jesus is alive, we have hope today. I would call that the yearning for Christ. And so I want to dive into that. And we're going to keep popping back into 1 Corinthians, but I want to dive into that. What does it mean to yearn for the return of Christ? Or, or simply, what does it mean to yearn for, for Christ, Period. While I'm sure we can come up with a long list, I have two ways that I often see Christians, I think, yearning. Maybe you find yourself in one of these. We're going to look at apathy and contentment. So one of the ways, one of the ways upon the way some people yearn is through apathy. 
Apathy is lacking emotion. It is being indifferent. And I use the word being specifically because it's not just an emotional thing. It's also a state of mind, like where you find yourself. It becomes a lifestyle. So it's not just the lack of emotion. It is also indifference. Apathy produces complacency. And on the notes, I have two things under apathy. I have complacency and thirst. We're going to combine it and just make it one. Because here's the truth. The resurrection of Christ matters because it has implications on you and I today. And oftentimes we treat the resurrection or we even believe that the resurrection is a convenience to us. And because it is a convenience to us, oftentimes we live complacent lives. So what happens when we develop a culture, a posture of complacency? Well, several things can happen. Namely, we become, you and I become numb to sin. That's one of them. That we become none to sin. Because the resurrection of Christ and the hope that we have in the gospel is a convenience to us, when we sin, there actually isn't conviction that happens. When we sin, we tend to believe something like, well, I'm forgiven anyway, so the gospel is a golden ticket. Or when we sin, there is no conviction, therefore there is no transformation. And so we become complacent. We become numb to sin. One of the other things that tends to happen in complacency is that we're constantly thirsty. We're constantly trying to satisfy an appetite that simply isn't going to be satisfied because it's not founded in Christ. Here's what I mean by that. An easy way of actually explaining this could be reflecting upon your life and asking the questions, where are the idols in my life? Idols replace God. Now, when idols replace God, what we tend to do is we tend to invest all our time, money, and effort into that one idol. Inevitably, however, the idol fails us. And when the idol fails us, we go out and look for another, and then another, and then another. And oftentimes, we can hide idolatry with good things. Oftentimes, when it comes to the language or conversation about idolatry, we're talking about the bad things. But the problem is, idolatry could be when a good thing is the only thing. It could be relationship. It could be your marriage. It could be children. It could be your job. It could be where you find yourself in right now. It could be what you want your husband to be, what you want your wife to be. Your idol could be a good thing. The scary thing about idol isn't so much, or it's not only that it could be a good thing, it's that we will mask it with gospel-centered language. We will mask it with gospel-centered language. And unfortunately, our thirst will never be quenched. Our appetite will never be satisfied. Complacency also produces just like what Proverbs says. That we're just kind of lazy. That we're asleep. 
that when it comes to the things of God and what God has done for you in Christ, like it could be put it this way. Like if Jesus came back today, the individual who is complacent would be like, hey, just tell me, just tell me when he's here. Just wake me up when he gets here. Right? I was talking to Nathaniel right before we came up. And so my wife, Rebecca, one time was in Tennessee and she goes on to tell me that there was a lightning storm in Tennessee, whatever. And, uh, and she was asleep, and she said it was so loud and so powerful that when she awoke from her sleep, she thought it was Jesus coming back, right? She was like, it's happening! And, you know, she's like trying to get, like, Seth awake, and it's just a lightning storm and some rain. But when I think about that, right, like nobody woke her up. She woke herself up and she like runs towards it, right? Someone who is complacent, be like, yeah, just, just, just wake me up. Text me when he gets here so I can be ready. Apathy produces complacency. Do you find yourself yearning apathetically? Like, yeah, that'll be a good day. That'll be a good day when Christ returns. That's good. And again, if that's what you believe, or if that's how you believe, it'll shape how you live today. Are you numb to sin? Is there a lack of conviction? Is there a lack of transformation? And do you think salvation really is about a golden ticket only? Are you asleep? Do you keep on looking to other things to satisfy your thirst? Do you keep on looking to other idols to satisfy your thirst? Do you use gospel-centered language to justify your idols? That would be my challenge, my exhortation to you. The second way, I think, that we ought to yearn, or how we ought to yearn, is in contentment. I'm going to park here for a while. It is in contentment. Christian contentment means, check it, it means that our satisfaction is independent of our circumstance. Our satisfaction is independent of our circumstance. That our self-sufficiency is actually found in Christ, not in the changing of circumstances. In 1 Corinthians, as Paul is addressing the resurrection of Christ, and even in, uh, in Romans and in Philippians, when he speaks about contentment, he's tripping his readers out. Because the philosophers of his day believed that contentment comes through changing your circumstances. Contentment is related to happiness. Therefore, if you're not in a good situation or you're not in a good circumstance, just change it. And so Paul comes back and he says, no, no, no. Contentment actually doesn't happen from you changing your circumstance. Contentment is actually developed in your character. It's not something that you do. It is a development of your character as you find yourself rooted in your identity that is in Christ in spite of your circumstance. Because the question that is produced from Paul is, what if you can't change your circumstance? Homeboy's writing that question from jail on the verge of being beheaded. So the question stands, 
What if you can't change your circumstance? Contentment is rooted in our sufficiency that is in Christ, not in the changing of our circumstance. Contentment provides four promises. The first one is that it provides hope or that it promises hope. See, because if we're content in the finished work of God in Christ, then our hope today is in what is to come. Not just the return of Christ, but what that means for me right now. But as we speak of a future glory, as we speak of a future hope, our hope is found in the fact that there's going to be a resurrection of everyone. And we will be in the presence of God. The resurrection also means that we will be fully restored. You see, right now, if you belong to Jesus, you have a renewed mind and you have a new heart. Upon the resurrection of the body, so will your physical body be restored. It's not just no more pain. It's that you will be fully restored. No ailments, no handicap or disability that you will be fully restored. And so what you believe right now shapes that future hope. How you live shapes that future hope. And so contentment produces hope. Contentment produces or promises endurance. Endurance to press forward. This is uh, Philippians 3. If I can find it. This is what Paul says in chapter 3, beginning of verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward toward, forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He continues in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Contentment promises endurance. Endurance that we could suffer well. Endurance that as we set our minds on the goal, we can move forward because our hope is rooted in Christ. We can endure suffering and persecution. We could also endure some of the uncomfortable daily ordinary stuff like sanctification as God is producing like conviction and he is revealing stuff to you. Uh, you know, that, the stuff that nobody knows about, like it's in the comfort of your quiet time. It's not this grand like suffering and persecution model. It's just you at your desk, quiet time, coffee and Colossians, right? And God is just revealing stuff to you. And uh, in the midst of that, that's sanctification. Contentment promises endurance. It promises that when God reveals his will to you, you, you get it. That alone, some might say, what is God's will for my life? Please tell me what is God. I will tell you. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, your sanctification. That kind of like killed the, the moment. Some people were like, I really want to know what God's will is. Yeah, it's sanctification. It is sanctification. And if we can have a firm understanding of sanctification, then we can yearn in contentment. 
we can be content in Christ right now. Number three, contentment promises that we can kill sin. If we are rooted in what God has done for us in Christ, that is that we have the Holy Spirit. And because we have the Holy Spirit, we have the power to say no to sin. You see, if you belong to Jesus, that means that he has purchased you. He has redeemed you from your bondage to sin. And because he has redeemed you, you now have the Holy Spirit in you. And because you have the Holy Spirit in you, you have the power to say no to sin. That means you can kill sin. That means when temptation comes your way, and it will, and it does, you don't have to be enticed by it. You guys know what it means to be enticed? It's not just the tempting of, of, of sin. Enticed means that we clamp down on it. In James chapter 1, he uses the analogy of fishing. He says, temptation is going to lure you away, and you're going to be enticed. Enticed means that you're going to bite the bait. You're going to take the bait. Because you have the Holy Spirit in you, you don't have to. You don't have to. And finally, contentment, contentment produces the life everlasting. The closing of this uh, creed. I mentioned earlier that there's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a resurrection of the body for everyone. And one of two things will be said. You will hear Jesus say, depart from me, I never knew you, or well done, good and faithful servant. There will be those who find life everlasting in the presence and glory of God and they will experience full restoration. And there, then there will be those who experience the life everlasting and eternal separation from him. Contentment forces us to ask ourselves a simple question. It forces us to ask ourselves, and I hope you ask yourself this today, but contentment forces us to ask ourselves a simple question. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? What if the circumstance doesn't change? Is Jesus enough? What if, singles, what if you don't get married? Is Jesus enough? But if you don't get to have kids and you're married, is Jesus enough? What if you don't get that promotion at work, the one that you've been working really hard for? What if it never comes? You know, all the things that you've been working for, really, you know, you've been striving to do it, what if you don't get to see the fruit? What if you don't get to see the fruit of your labor? Some of you love ministry. What if you don't get to serve in ministry? What if that never happens? Now, those are just a couple of things. Insert your whatevs. What if it doesn't change? Is Jesus enough? 
Is Jesus enough that you yearn in contentment for his return? That you are grounded in what he has done for you in Christ right now. And you yearn for his return because you are content with where Jesus has you. And Jesus is enough. You see, the misconception about contentment is that you're missing out. When you hear about others' lives and you hear about what may be going on in other people, good or bad, mainly good, you tend to wonder, man, I'm missing out. I I can't be content because I'm missing out. The truth, however, is that contentment is a full satisfaction in Christ because of the glory that is to come. Again, it's a very, very simple question. May not necessarily be an easy answer, but it is a simple question. Is Jesus enough? Contentment isn't a skill that you learn, but it's character development in our present circumstance. Contentment promises hope. It promises endurance. It promises the killing of sin. It promises the life everlasting. And it builds maturity and steadfastness. The opening words of the creed were, I believe. Those words have a great implication for us as Christians. We said that belief finds itself rooted in our surrender and in Christ alone. As we close the Apostles' Creed, we learn that the Apostles' Creed is a confession of our faith, a summary of the faith that Jesus taught his disciples. It was recited by the early church right before baptism. It was confessed by martyrs before they died. And it is embraced by us today. If you know Jesus, then recite the creed because it points you back to the pages of Scripture. Beg the Holy Spirit to meet you where you're at. Beg the Lord to reveal himself to you in that moment. And if you don't know Jesus... Read the creed anyway, as it proclaims the beauty of the gospel. That is that Christ came to die for sinners. And through his resurrection, you can have the life everlasting. When we yearn in contentment, it's not that we long for death. We long to see the death of death, as Paul says in verse 26. But when we yearn in contentment, it's not that we long for death, but that death holds no power over us. That death is merely a vehicle into glory. When we yearn in contentment, we long for heaven, not just because it's better than hell and better than this life, but because we will have fully been restored. That is the hope that enables us to yearn for the return of Christ today. Let's pray. God, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be honest. I don't, think, uh, I don't think I yearn for the return of Christ well. 
I, personally, I think I, I intellectualize it. Yeah, that's, that's cool. That's going to come. But Lord, what you say through Paul and how you force us to apply it to not only who you say we are, but what we believe today changes my perspective on it. And God, I pray that, that our perspective and our hearts and our minds would be renewed when it comes to the yearning for your return. God, if I have learned anything from this creed, from the Apostles' Creed, it is, it is that everything that we believe has an implication. God, when we proclaim that we believe in you as our Father, in Jesus as our Lord, and in your Holy Spirit, that has implication for our lives today. God, when we declare and proclaim that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, that has implications for us today. God, this beautiful piece of church history not only points us back to the pages of Scripture, but challenges us to really ask two questions, and that is, what do I believe and more significantly, why do I believe it? God, I pray that we would be a church that not only confesses the Apostles' Creed because we agree with the doctrine in it, because it points us back to Scripture and it forces us to ask ourselves tough questions. And as we ask ourselves tough questions, I pray that we beg you to meet us where we're at in the pages of Scripture. And God, as we close, I pray that we would be a people that yearns for the return of Christ in contentment. God, I, I pray that if there are those who are, I suppose, yearn, are yearning in apathy, Holy Spirit, or in complacency, Holy Spirit, I, just, I pray that you would convict them. I pray you would convict them through your word. And I pray that your word would penetrate the condition of their heart. God, I also pray that there are those who have a misconception of contentment, that they're missing out. They might agree that, yes, I want to yearn in contentment, but they still have a misconception of what it means. God, I pray that you would take your word and penetrate the condition of their heart. That we would repent of our pride that we would repent of our arrogance and that we would surrender ourselves before you. And Holy Spirit, may you do a work that glorifies you and transforms us into the image of Jesus. God, as we move on or move forward in our time, I want to lift up tithes and offerings. Lord, this is where we give you our stuff giving you our, our hearts, we're giving you our voices, man, we're giving you our, our minds. Lord, this is where we give you our stuff. This is where this is where we get to see an example of transformation. Because everything we have is yours. Everything we have is yours. Therefore, let us worship you through tithes and offerings. 
Let us repent of the control we think we have and give you all the glory by surrendering our stuff to you. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the Apostles' Creed. We thank you for pointing us to the pages of Scripture, meeting us where we're at and convicting us and challenging us, but also comforting us. May your name be praised, continue to be praised this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.